Hello and good morning. My guests today are two giants in the regulatory, managing regulatory change business. Ruth Wandhover, from who's global head of regulatory and market, market strategy in City, and Richard Rabin, chairman of the European ACT. We'll be discussing managing the impact of regulatory change on transaction banking. And the reason why we're doing this is because Ruth has just published a huge tome on various aspects of managing regulatory change in transaction banking and the impact. Ruth, why did you write this book? What was the reason for doing it? Because it's a huge amount of work. Yes, I of course did that in my spare time, so it has nothing to do with past or existing employers. You don't have any spare time. <laughs> I did have some because I went off for, on maternity last year. But the key reason for writing this piece was that I've seen across the marketplace there's been not a lot of messaging around transaction banking and what those services actually bring to the global economy. There's been a lot of concern post-crisis with how banks behave and what are the things that we need uh, on the regulatory side to fix banking in general. Uh, but when we look at the specific transaction banking business, some of those bank-wide regulatory measures sometimes have unintentional implications on this business, which has not been really at the core of the crisis at all. And in fact, is there to support the global businesses in order to be able to grow. So in my view, it's quite important that all regulators understand the value of this business and make sure that designing regulations does not unintentionally limit or reduce the services that banks can deliver in this space. I'm sure Richard and I would agree that Transaction banking is absolutely essential for world trade and world, the world economic. If you and the other transaction banks disappeared, so would world trade. But before we get into the regulatory, managing regulatory change, in your opinion, why each of you, why was more regulatory framework needed? What was the reason that it, we got this huge breakup of the financial system in 2008, but it had been coming for many years. Richard? Well, you know, in a sense, where does one start? But I mean, obviously, I, I um, like many, feel very strongly that the banks failed the world economy in 2008 and in the run-up to 2008. And they failed because they, as a generalization, they managed risk poorly within their own businesses. And, and that had a, a dramatic knock-on effect on on them. Um, on, on global economies because of the importance that banks play in those economies. I think also, I mean, this, the other factor for me is that I would, would argue that the regulators themselves, in many cases, were either not on watch or were asleep on their watches, and they let us down, you know, almost equally so. So, you know, whatever one, whatever one likes or dislikes about all the work that's gone on since 2008, it was clearly absolutely necessary. Ruth? Yes, I think we did see in the crisis that one of the areas, coming back to Richard's first point around risk, was the intraday liquidity risk, which was not managed well by many institutions. In fact, people didn't know where the liquidity was and some of the assumed liquidity wasn't liquid. So whilst we have a number of Basel III measures tackling elements of bank capital, leverage is another key area that was an issue, a buildup of leverage of some institutions. I would say it's the combination of leverage and transparency on intraday liquidity uh, that was really a shortcoming in some institutions and created a snowball effect that 
expose the interconnectivity that naturally happens when one trades with the other in a global economy. major reason was the assumption that in free markets that you don't need to regulate them and that assumption has proved desperately wrong. Richard, one more point. Well, I, I was just going to say that I, obviously I don't, again, don't disagree with Ruth's, you know, well-informed description of the micro aspects of what, what happened, but of course, I think it's a great danger. We, we must never lose sight of the sort of macro perspective. And, and you know, while state liquidity, I'm sure, was, was a huge issue, um, what was also an issue was that the, the, you know, the whole business model of banks seems with hindsight, and many of us didn't see it at the time, to have been broken, you know, not in some cases actually corrupt. And, and I think that it's very important that when we discuss regulation, that we don't forget that, and therefore that the cultural issues associated with banking that went so terribly wrong must not be sort of, you know, swept under the carpet. I know I'm not for a moment suggesting Ruth is trying to do that, but we must not lose sight of them as we talk about change and what's needed in the, in the change process. Absolutely concur with that. Okay, so definitely bank behaviour and moral behaviour is required, but as we move and look at the impact of current legislation on transaction banking, it seems to me that we've got some basic disconnects here. What is the basic biggest disconnect for you, Ruth? Current legislation is causing real problems. Yeah, I think one element is, of course, the one-size-fits-all approach. We do see um, significant increases in bank capital requirements, which, on the one hand, are very easily uh, explicable phenomenon. Capital is one of your core elements to make sure that you can defend your business over longer periods of time. The other element is the shorter-term and medium-term liquidity requirements. Combine that with leverage, you, you may already see slightly conflicting Basel targets, but when we apply those uh, changes to the transaction banking space, which has elements of assets and elements of liabilities, you do see that a business that has been running smoothly without any um, sort of leverage and risk disruptions now being, of course, scrutinized as part of the one-size-fits-all, meaning that any asset type of lending, of course, has a higher cost than it used to have. And equally, any deposit-taking liability side has a slightly different uh, type of quality when it comes to, for example, corporations. In the past, a corporate deposit or term deposit was sort of counting towards your liquidity in the bank. You could lend out part of it subject to your general capital constraints. But now with the liquidity regime, we do yeah, see- Yeah, but the reason they put these restrictions in or new uh, ratios in is because banks were basically very vulnerable and became totally illiquid. Richard? Yes, uh, I mean, I, I agree with what Ruth was saying. The, but of course, the, the, I mean, the, the issue for me is, is, and Ruth referred to it earlier, is, is all about unintended consequences. And I think that, I mean, I, I tend to sort of bang on about this, but, but the hard reality is that bank regulation was, has been um, developed by bankers for bankers. And I think maybe, maybe Ruth may agree with this, that therefore it's, it's generally had serious unintended, you know, being, being generous unintended consequences for what I, you know, like to refer to as the real economy and the non-financial counterparties of, of, of the banks. So yes, the, the, the one size fits all model is, 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 um, is A, unhelpful in many cases, but also actually is, is founded on a, a lack of proper understanding of what it does to the, 
to the end users of the financial system. An example would be trade finance, where we have historically demonstrated as an industry by the International Chamber of Commerce that default rates are in the very, very low 0.0, .0 percentages. Um, and this space, of course, if you um, say under the leverage ratio that all off balance sheet contingent items in relation to trade would have to be considered with 100% conversion for the purpose of the leverage ratio, it certainly disproportionately punishes that very low risk business versus other type of off balance sheet transactions where we know in the past certain of those were quite risky um, also in connection to special purpose vehicles. So we have identified over time some specific areas where we've then in the European Union and also in the US have been fairly successful to a certain extent to modify rules with a view to those particular services that sustain the global economy but a lot of more work is still required now particularly on the longer term uh, net stable funding ratio as well you I mean, both made the point in different places you in your book and elsewhere ruth and uh, richard i see it again and again from you um, that the consistency of the regulation between the different regions around the world is causing major problems. Can you see any way of overcoming that, Richard? I, I think it's incredibly difficult, and you're absolutely right that it's, a, as far as I can see, a continuing issue. I mean, I maybe naively, I, I used to get invited to sort of roundtable sessions at IOSCO in, down in Madrid, and at one point a couple of years ago, I sort of very brightly put my hand up and said, look, the man from Mars observing what's going on would be staggered that we're sitting here discussing regional differences and, and the man from Mars will ask why on earth is nobody pulling it all together globally. Um, I don't think my comment fell on particularly fertile ground because, because people are probably just gun shy of the whole issue, but it's, it's a big issue. It hasn't been solved. You know, arguably IOSCO or a differently defined IOSCO should have a lead responsibility on that, but it's not happening at the moment. And the clarity of objectives, Ruth, you make uh, the point again and again in your book, that the objectives are not clear in the regulations and therefore there's difficulty in applying it. How are we going to overcome that? Well, I think it needs to have a mindset change of regulators themselves. What we see at a global level is that post-crisis, there was a lot of initiative in the G20 body to sort things out and have clear agreements between themselves. But over the years, we've also seen that many more local variations and approaches have started to emerge. And if you compare certain legislative pieces from, let's say, derivatives clearing US versus Europe, uh, Basel approaches the US versus Europe, usually these two jurisdictions are key outstanding ones that have started embracing reform very early, you start seeing emergent differences. And that, of course, doesn't really help the global consistency, particularly for services that are globally and cross-border transacted. I think there is a concern that, to a certain extent, regulator collaboration isn't happening to, to the level required to actually support the global economy. And instead, we do see a shift towards inward local control. An example would be the ring fencing um, sort of developments we've seen in the UK and the US with maybe more European countries following in the future. Uh, most of these are targeted to local taxpayer protection, making sure that politically uh, governments are not exposing themselves to any sort of perception that they're protecting banks that are acting in the wrong behavior, which is of course fine, but it does disrupt to a certain extent the, the way the bank structures 
have run in the past. That's maybe also an objective. We, what we need to make sure, and I'm making that point in my book, is that all of those developments on the structural reform side do not destroy the ability of a global transaction network to operate because that actually supports banks and major corporations around the world. And I think that is my sort of last point. Whatever you're restructuring and regulating, make sure this global network is not going to be destroyed accidentally. Richard, do you buy that? Because inevitably Ruth is coming from a, the biggest global network bank and she would understand that. But do you understand that as a buyer of these services? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting what she was saying because Ruth was touching on the, uh, a rather technical issue which I can vaguely begin to try to understand, which is that CVA risk capital charge. And, and there is a fundamental difference between the, uh, I and a number of people who were involved in trying to persuade the European Union it should, it should include an exemption from CVA risk capital for corporates who were benefiting from the OTC derivatives clearing exemption. And we got that in Europe. Um, there was, uh, we understood fierce lobbying by large American banks in the States against the, um, the EU allowing this to go through. That it went through, but the issue is again now coming to a head as, as Basel and others reassess compliance with Basel III. And I mean, I find it interesting. I mean, uh, you know, this is obviously not a bank bashing day, but it is clear that the power of the bank lobby in the US is being applied fiercely to try to force the European Union, which I think they'll fail on, by the way, but they're trying to force the European Union to comply with Basel III, which would mean actually forcing all corporates to clear derivatives centrally, which is, you know, is in, in my view, economically nonsense because of its liquidity risk implications for the, for the corporates. So, you know, these are big, big issues and big stakes and big, powerful institutions getting involved in trying to drive, um, you know, uh, arrangements in one direction or another. So, you know, it, it's a dangerous game, I think. And, and yet, obviously, going back to the beginning of the question, um, if we had genuine global consistency at the beginning and a commitment to implement consistency, then we wouldn't have these, you know, these tensions arising as we see them now. Yeah, I would concur. And uh, I mean, on the corporate side, we've actually been sort of helping the dialogue at the European level to make sure that corporates are not unintentionally impacted by the rules and even though everyone has to report the clearing obligation is certainly only applying to very few um, in the us the regime how it was developed was actually to exclude corporations altogether and then by this non-hedging provision they're sort of coming in so i'm not entirely sort of agreeing with you that it's U.S. banks lobbying for corporations to clear derivatives in, in the U.S. I think there's a general concern of the banking community that U.S. and European rules are not consistent and that anyone who does trade cross-border and who is under the clearing obligation will have real difficulty because at some end, someone may violate a legislation unintentionally because otherwise the other legislation cannot be complied with. And I think that's the core of the problem. Some corporates have... Uh rearrange their treasury structures so they're only in one jurisdiction. That's clearly going to happen. Can I just jump in there? Because I think there, there, there are two actually two issues in what you're saying. With One is the consistency in the, in the approach to, to clearing of derivatives, which I obviously agree with is huge, huge issues, as I understand it, arising from the inconsistency, and that's not helpful. But the other one is specifically on the, the legitimacy, in my view, of the Basel III approach to the CBA risk capital charge. Now, I'm, you know, get totally outside my technical depth here, but I understand there is a strong argument that says it's falsely calibrated 
Yes, I agree with that. No, I did make that point in the book. Uh, specifically yeah. on transaction banking related services, it yeah. does not consider the risk environment properly. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I was surprised. I mean, obviously, the Basel Committee in assessing compliance points out the divergences and saying that EU is non-compliant on that aspect, but equally the US is non-compliant on some other aspects. And the question is whether over time people can actually agree to comply with something that makes sense. And in this uh, CVA related point, there's some CVA applications which make sense and others which may need to be reconsidered, but globally. Uh, I agree with that. The big question that's coming out for me for here is, has actually the regulation increased competition or decreased it? What has it done to the competitive market and does it matter? And I, I, my impression very strongly is that regulation in general is, is going to reduce competition. It's actually going to force business into what, you know, what I've called national champion banks and, and, and to the serious detriment, obviously, of the smaller SME community. And I think, therefore, it's not good news if, if, you, know, if you believe that healthy competition is a good thing, which I, which I do. Maybe just to add, I mean, we've seen that pr prior international banks uh, from certain countries have significantly reduced their foreign footprint, which, again, comes back to Richard's point, reducing competition in markets like Latin America, markets like the US, because people have been closing off their branches and their activities with the view of becoming more inward focused because their local regulator would like to see them more active in the home market where the regulator can control them. On the other hand, um, every regulation is a barrier to entry anyway. And what we have seen in some areas such as trade finance, that there's been a very um, clear application of scrutiny by many institutions that have been in this business to say, is this still our core activity? Can we actually finance it with the Basel III constraints plus G, SIP surcharges, etc.? And some banks have taken decision to actually exit or severely limit that business to the benefit of other providers. So again, both on the service level as well as the geographic a competition side, we have seen a reduction of competition, which is in my mind completely the opposite of what regulators tend to say they want. They would like more competition by which they would like to see a risk limited on, on having too much of, of large exposure to certain institutions and that's not what's happening at the moment. Yeah, but the, the competition drove a lot of the behavior. It's, it's a very difficult balance. I, I don't always agree with regulators, but I think you have to understand where they're coming. Yes, two sides. I mean, you can say that competition could be beneficial. You can also say competition will induce certain actors to take more risk in order to have that extra margin. But what we do see is there's, there's certainly a significant reduction in competition in markets where, where there was more diversity and there's now less diversity. And I guess the question is over longer term, if we look at the EU, one of the key issues was that there were some banks that were too exposed to their local sovereign and that exposure has actually increased because they've been adopting an inward focus. The banking union is trying to tackle that link. Whether that will be successful, we will see. Supervision is clearly a very important element that we have to get right in the future. But I think some of those inward looking Aspects are not necessarily reflecting that there's still a global market that customers would like to make use of. Okay, let's move on and look at the final section in your book where you were, had a magic mix on how to avoid future <laughs> crises. Now, 
there are many different ideas, some of which I'm sure are making some people jump up and down, others applauding. Um, but your, one of your biggest themes is that trying to cut banks down to a size that doesn't matter if they fail is bound to cause real restrictions in transaction banking globally and so on. How, explain yourself, Ruth, because I think there's some important points here. Yes, so I'm, I'm approaching the last chapter from a bank-wide perspective um, and make reference to transaction banking where relevant. I think one of the key elements that we do see the Basel Committee tackling now is enhanced disclosures and more transparency really in the disclosure process and more ability for investors and anyone else in the market to actually compare banks. I do also in the same context suggest that it would be nice and we've had the discussion probably for over 10 years now to align accounting standards globally because once you are able to compare apples with apples, you can almost have an element of self-regulatory play there because investors are able to decide uh, what to invest in depending on the different risk profiles because they can actually compare institutions with each other. And we've seen in the crisis that some of the uh, US counting rules were maybe presenting derivative positions in very different ways than the um, IFRS. And these are all kind of problems that need to be somehow tackled. Whether you can do all of that just with better disclosure or whether you need an eventual alignment of standards in accounting um, is another question. Richard, do do you buy that point about IFRS? Because it's a fundamental. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of the extent of, of differences, but I totally accept what Ruth is saying that there are differences, and then, you know, clearly that's, that should be taken seriously. And yes, the consistency in, in implementation of IFRS has always been an issue, you know, beyond the banking sector. So um, I, I would have to agree. Um, I mean, I'm slightly worried when you start talking about enhanced disclosure. I mean, it's a long time since I've actually sort of physically seen a bank annual report, but I understand that HSBC a couple of years ago was running about 700 pages. So if, if the disclosure is through the public reporting, then I think we, you know, there's a, there's, I mean, I, there's a big enough problem in, in the non-banking sector with just the disclosure of, pay, of pension accounting in the annual report, uh, where, the, you know, we now have pages and pages of data, which frankly, most people can't assimilate. So I think there is an issue of Disclosure, yes, but disclosure to whom and who's, who's going to be able to make added value decisions from seeing that disclosure. Obviously, disclosure is a good thing. We, you know, I couldn't disagree with that. Increased transparency is clearly a good thing, but we need more and better monitoring and regulatory control. What are your experiences, Richard? Because Ruth comes up with clarity and consistency of regulation and so on. Um, where are you coming from in terms of getting more and better monitoring? Because I think we need more regulators, for sure. I mean, the sort of argument that I personally have used for some time now, which again, is probably falling on totally infertile ground, is that we actually need to educate the regulators. I mean, I, I, I spent a huge amount of time going back to Forrest to Brussels since 2009, lots of meetings with the Commission, MEPs and so on. And the Commission, the Commission lies at the heart of the European agenda because they do the initial drafting. And I feel really sorry for those guys because, they, you know, like civil servants around the world, they're, they're, they're very bright individuals, but they're actually not, not experts, subject matter experts in general. And yet these are the people producing the regulatory proposals, which then, you know, through hassling and bargaining and negotiation end up in, in, in European law. And many of the unintended consequences that we've seen in, in almost all the financial regulatory proposals um, so far 
shouldn't have been there if the people doing the initial drafting had had the chance to do better impact assessments and had a better understanding of the underlying issues and the role of the of the banks and the non-banks in, in those issues. Well, what's was the most important lesson for you about more and better monitoring and regulation? Yes, it starts with the regulators, as Richard said, and I would fully concur, having been uh, involved with regulators for a very long time. They have a massive challenge, but they do have issues on the technical side very often and they listen to many stakeholders and at the end you get some sort of compromise that tends to be very politicized when it goes through decision making um, and so you would have to question the end result as to how effective it can be and i think that's something we do see around the world and certainly in the eu and the us on the way this is being designed um, i think starting from better regulation better impact assessments a better understanding of regulators of how the market operates and maybe should operate in the future the other side of it is of course supervision on both regulator and supervisory sides it would be very helpful to employ existing bankers that can actually come in with their subject matter knowledge and explain how things are working in banks today, how to tackle maybe shortcomings, identify market failure, and therefore how to improve the system. As long as we but have- Would you fund it? How would you fund it? Because <laughs> bankers are not cheap and they earn more than civil servants. Yeah, I think there will be some sort of shift over time. Um, and there should be because if you really take it serious and you want to repair the system and keep the system intact and stable for the future you need to approach it from the side of having the right incentives on the supervisory and regulator side and on the other hand having the right incentive in banks so i think over time we could see more of an alignment and more bright individuals from banks moving to the other side and making that a real transparent informed conversation that can lead to a better result of regulation and supervision in the future. And Richard, would you buy bankers developing the new regulations? Well, I think I think the, the if you go back to stage and Ruth made the point that the influence of bankers in a lobbying sense or implied, it has been unhealthy, but, but clearly the access to the expertise is, is, is very important. But but I mean, the fundamental problem, and I may be sort of cutting across some of what Ruth was saying, is, is that financial regulation needs to recognize the impact on the non-financial sector. If it doesn't, then it's, it's fine, but actually it'll fail because it will have adverse unintended consequences on, on the non-financial sector. So we need to get that input somehow. And, and as you know, Ruth well described, the, the you know, inefficiencies of the current system in, in Brussels, and I'm sure it isn't just in Brussels, um, under which we get, you know, we don't get, always get the right outcomes. Okay, uh, Ruth, final question for you. The liquidity simplification uh, system that you're suggesting is getting rid of all the Basel III liquidity ratios and so on and replacing it just by fully transparent reporting using um, IFRS standards. What's been the reaction to that? Because I just went, wow, when I read that. Well, it's a, it's a radical idea, but um, if you were in a situation where you had transparent accounting standards, transparent disclosures, and maybe simplified disclosures, coming back to Richard's 700 page comment, because obviously the disclosure has to be digestible and people looking at it have to be able to make a decision between investing in one or the other institution if we just look at the investor side and equally from the regulator perspective, you could over time see more of a self-regulatory um, impact kicking in where banks that are running certain two risky positions 
from the perception of the market or banks that are not having a very good overall um, risk management model and that shows in their figures and their disclosures will be already punished, if you so wish, by the decisions of investors not to, uh, to buy that uh, stock or debt. And I think that's an important element that where self-regulation could actually have a more meaningful role. I do say this in particular because we've seen in the financial crisis that the market panic and the decisions taken were also very investor-driven. And investors had the promise that, in fact, whatever they invest in, if things fail, they would still get their money back. So I'm also putting up the point that investors have to adapt to a new regime. We have been discussing this for some time. We don't want to have any more bail-in. We are now moving to the bail-out model. We are moving to the bail-in side. And investors at the same time have to realize that if they're taking positions, they are also responsible for the risk they're taking and not everything uh, comes for free in the long run. So I think there's two sides on the investor side of being accepting the bail and, and having better disclosure to take some decisions as to where they invest in order to make them more responsible. Because what we really want to avoid and what was the big issue in the crisis was this extreme market panic that as soon as people start trusting one player or the other, they can actually make that player insolvent in seconds which may not mean bankruptcy, but of course insolvency means you stop operating and leads usually to bankruptcy. And that was an example in, in the Lehman case where eventually yeah, people lose positions, but it took a long time. But the critical importance of transaction banking is that we need to keep that going. We can't actually lose exactly. any of the major players. Can we, Richard? Final well, I mean, this is where I think you, you know, we get into sort of a debate which we won't have today was whether banks largely are going to become utility providers. And if, if that, you know, if you, if you, if you look at the current situation and the, un, the, the unsolved problems, I think you can construct an argument, argument that says transaction banking is clearly absolutely vital for economies. It's, 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 you know, it's part of the process that's needed, but it's untenable to have it provided from within the, the same entity that is so dysfunctional still because we haven't solved the too big to fail problem in my view so you know i think you can end up arguing that, that the transactional bankers actually should be in you know once it's put in one side until that you do what's, what's incredibly important provide transactional banking services and we'll get on with trying to establish control and, and appropriate regulation for the rest of the banking system um, so it's you know it's a sort of parting of the ways Potentially. Just a quick comment on, on you know, all the talk we've just had about investors, obviously absolutely vital, and I totally take um, Ruth's description of what happened. But of course, it's a real irony that it's the investors that should determine the sort of fate of the financial system, because it's, a, it's an indictment of our own failure to do all the right things prior to it becoming a case of investors running for cover and, and causing the, you know, the house of cards to come down. So I think that's, that's the unsolved problem, is, is building an appropriate regulatory system to ensure we don't actually end up with investor panics. I mean, that's exactly why investors being responsible for the decisions with the bail-in regime 
is so crucial because that's one element to actually make them more accountable for their own actions because they feel the result if things go wrong, let's say. And on the other hand, they have a role in taking decisions and driving the markets, which is, is undoubtedly there and will continue to be there. And to, in order to enable them to have that role um, executed responsibly, better disclosure and comparison ability will certainly help take the right decisions. So it's these two elements that I would be looking at. But coming back to transaction banking, I think the question is how can you sustain the global network that operates efficiently with sufficient innovation and solutioning that has to be adapted over time as technologies and customers' needs evolve? How do you sustain that if you think you will have to run it as a public good, let's say, and how do you sustain it if, if it wouldn't have the underlying global bank network to support it? And I think these are questions that are clearly unanswered at this stage. My point is that too big to fail uh, doesn't necessarily call for a complete breakup of the banks. Um, I think every bank some sort of legitimacy to operate large, medium and small. And it's the interaction between those and having common uh, rules such as Basel that certainly will, will be an ingredient to make this work. Better supervision, better regulation, but it does, it's the answer in my view is not to just split up banks and then say, okay, now we reduce the risk to a local manageable risk because you, you may have also reduced the service to something where uh, players are not uh, satisfied in the longer run. This could go on and on. Before I finish, I'd just like to recommend to CTM file readers your two publications, Ruth spoke on transaction banking and the impact of regulatory change. It's an important piece of work. It's, it's got a huge amount of reference material, but also full of real ideas. The other one I'd recommend is the publication that Richard puts out each month on their monthly report on regulatory issues. Essential reading, both of them. Thank you very much.